everyone. Love Talk Radio. So now we have our Facebook Live friends. We have our Vibe Radio Network friends. And we have a foster voice with murder bitch. Just, just off camera. Just barely on the edge of the camera. She got shot today. Ah, uh, she's doing okay. Yeah. Happy Spooky Monday. Yeah. Woo! Oh. I'm going to show you off really because you're just so thinking cute. Hi, everybody. So oh, thinking cute. <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, so uh, let's see, it's been a couple of weeks. We've been uh, spending a little bit of time on the road, coincidentally, up on the river. Yes, which and is why we decided to do Erie Paddle. Yes, so you'll notice we're not on the river. We were on the river, so. Yes. But we are back at Quantum Richmond Corporate Headquarters now. Yes. Here in our recording studio, <laughs> a.k.a. office, <laughs> a.k.a. office, a.k.a. storage Closet, aka craft room, craft room, aka Zoe's pet room, cat room. Yeah, so, oh, but yeah, the uh, house is uh, being decorated for Halloween. We got to finish the light stuff, and then the outside is done, inside's done. Not to my full extent because, and the other boiling. Yeah. Um. Yeah. <laughs> we don't like sick kitties or broken stuff. So. <laughs> Not everything's out, but that's okay. Got some got a fair bit of decorations up, and uh, by the time we talk to you again, we'll have it all all wrapped up. Yep. But the theme this year is uh, the Adams Family Garden. So Morticia's garden. Morticia's had a little fun making monsters. Let me just say, a lot of fun. <laughs> cheers, everybody. Um, before we go ahead and dive right in, we have one announcement. You can pick. We have one announcement to make, and we're going to do the one that uh, the, the first first one, because there's one that starts in November, and then there's one that starts in December. Right. Now, now, even though it's not live on our website yet, we are going to be partnering with the John Marshall House here in Richmond. So, yay for that. We're going to be uh, partnering with them starting in uh, starting in November. We're going to have a, have a, a, a special uh, indoor-outdoor tour with them. Yeah, uh, uh, John Marshall's Haunted Port End. Yep. And uh, you will have a tour with one of the docents at the John Marshall House, and they'll be talking about the spooky stuff that goes on there. And then we will take you outside uh, and walk you around Fort End to a couple of different haunted locations out there. Yep. So we're very excited about being able to bring that forward in uh, going into our winter season. Uh, but, again, the first uh, first date for that is going to be in November, and we'll get it published on our website probably in the next week. Sometime later in the week, and then get it posted on the website and all that good stuff. But 
So, yeah, anyway, you didn't actually, I mean, you may be excited about that, but that's not what you actually tuned in for. So, yeah, we're going to be going, we're going to be discussing some Erie paddles and uh, what that means. These are going to be kind of mostly some of the smaller waterways, the ones that you can go ahead, you can take to in your kayak or canoe. And uh, they have some uh, spooky tales associated with that. Very interesting tales, just because it was fun. Yep. So, <laughs> so, had a lot of fun with this one. Uh, and these actually, a lot of these I first found printed in outdoor magazines uh, that they did for a Halloween issue a while ago. So I thought it was kind of cool. Yep. To find them. Yeah, it was a lot of fun researching this one. And the stories are pretty cool. Yes. Yes, but yeah, we know that. You don't know that yet because we haven't told you the stories yet. So, anyways. Off you go. Off I go. So. Little introduction. By daylight, we can look upon our waterways with awe and wonder. The natural magic of our favorite lakes offers us nostalgia and serenity that we recall from the summers of our younger years. Around each river bend and amidst each patch of cattails is a new adventure and something to explore. Whether it be some tumbling rapids or a patch of glassy calm water, it can be easy to feel the desire of grabbing a paddle and to get ourselves even closer to the natural beauty that the water offers. During the bright light of the day, we can take ease in the water and our imaginations can stay in check. The fear of the dark unknown is banished by the sun. Yet it is at night when those beckoning waters and shoreline can turn foreboding. With each whisper of sound or shadow in the moonlight, our perceptions of uncertainty, dread, and fear can take root in our minds and send us running for our well-lit homes and the mental security that they offer. If you've been watching our shows for a while, the name Eldron Blackwood might ring a bell. He was the one that wrote The Kit Bag, which we shared with you as part of our Victorian Christmas Story episode last December. Now, Mitchell Blackwood is credited with many works during his life, including in a novella called The Willows. The Willows is about an adventurous canoe trip down the River Danube and the fright that set in after dark when mysterious forces emerge from within the forest, creating disturbing sounds and bizarre shadows. It's here at the otherwise whimsical water's edge that the story's narrator recalls, I felt a dread was no ordinary ghostly fear. It was indefinitely greater, stranger, and seems to arise from some dim ancestral sense of terror, more profoundly disturbing than anything I had known or dreamed of. We had strayed, as the Swede put it, into some region or some set of conditions where the risks were great, yet unintelligible to us where the frontiers of some unknown world lay close about us. So what's out there obscured along the watery brink? Is it a ghostly presence from the past, a spirit wandering lost, or a phantom bent on destruction? Or is it just a connection with some old scary tales meant to make us cringe and look over shoulders in apprehension on a cool autumn night? Whatever it is, the water seems to be able to draw out the brightest and darkest fears of our imagination. No matter your inclination, whether you're spooked or skeptical, we have a few ghostly stories from our nation's waterways for you tonight. Waterways where you can grab your paddle and explore to your heart's content or perhaps the extent of your nerves, particularly if you're willing to break a potential brush with the paranormal. And with that, we're actually going to start with something a little on the lighter side. Yeah, a little bit of an amusing tale. And this is a story from Gardner Lake in central Connecticut. Now, in 1895, Thomas LeCount, an area grocer, decided to move from the south side of Gardner Lake to the east side. While many would simply build another house at their new location, the grocer wanted to keep the two-story house he already owned. 
His solution was to wait until the lake was frozen over, put his house on wooden sleds, and to slide the house and all its contents, including a piano, across the ice. The plan was found. The ice was thick and would be able to support the 28-ton home. The crossing was expected to take a day, but late in the afternoon, the wooden sled became lodged in the snowbank. Unconcerned, the crew left the house for the night with the idea of finishing the job the following day. Unfortunately, the Falls Mill, which owned the water right to the lake, was oblivious to the house on the ice and proceeded to drain a substantial amount of water from the lake overnight. This created a gap beneath, beneath the ice, um, yeah, between the water and the ice, and without the support of the water, the ice would not hold. By the time the work crew returned in the morning, the house had fallen through the ice and was hopelessly stuck. While the family was able to retrieve many of their wet, uh, lightweight belongings, heavier items resided in the house until the spring thaw, when the ice melted away and the house finished its plunge to the bottom of the lake with heavy items in tow. While no one perished in this incident, the house seems to have become a gathering place for some of the many spirits of those who passed away in separate incidents on the lake. It said that if you go for a late-night paddle on the lake, as you draw close to the house's watery grave, you can hear the sounds of a spectral gathering, including the music of the drowned piano that went down with the house. It's a little creepy. <laughs> I don't want to go now. <laughs> All right, so we're going to hop over to New Hampshire. This is Haunted Lake. Uh, now, this next stop begs the question, which came first, the haunting or the name? South uh, Central New Hampshire, you'll find Haunted Lake. Described as a tranquil place featuring shallow waters, rooms with birch trees, pines, and summer cottages. The lake offers fishing, scenery, a delightful shade, and unexpected weird noises. According to the area's folklore, centuries ago, a massive forest fire swept through, killing everything and everyone who lived around the lake. Native Americans and European settlers in the fire's aftermath were more than a little spooked by the charred landscape. It said that from that point forward, the little pond was called Haunted Lake after eerie and bleak terrain that surrounded the water. In 1753, surveyor Matthew Patton added to the pond floor when he wrote in, uh, in his diary while camping near the pond. Soon after darkness set in, there was a groaning and shrieks as if human beings in distress, and these continued, most plaintive and effective, till early morning. Between the fire and diary entry, who knows what other local events, the name Haunted Lake, what has struck, excuse me, has struck through the generations. There's been a short-lived attempt to rename the body of water Scobie Lake when a family by the name, uh, same name actually built a mill there. Of course, that didn't end the spookiness around the pond, especially after they uncovered some skeletal remains on the lake shore. The name Haunted Lake has endured, and it is officially the recognized name of the lake to this. Yep. Go ahead. Now we're going to pop up to New York to Lake Ronacomba. I hope I got that right. Now when you think of Long Island uh, in New York State, there's many miles of ocean shoreline that might be a part of the image that pops into your mind. Those miles of shoreline probably don't include the lakes that dot the island, however. But there's a few such bodies of water of note. The largest of Long Island's lakes is Lake Ronacomba. The freshwater lake offers two miles of shoreline to explore with a maximum depth of 95 feet that is impressive for a very, fairly small body of water. 
Now, with all the of Long Island, it was inhabited by native tribes long before the Europeans set foot on North American soil. As the 1740s, some settlers have moved into the area around the lake with a tenuous coexistence with the native tribes. While the relationship was not overly hostile, it wasn't exactly uh, warm either. Definitely not such. This set a stage from the most prominent legend to hang over the lake to this day. Though the general dump, the Atante between the uh, natives and the feathers was cold, there was one spot of heat amongst the two groups. In classic Shakespearean fashion, two young star-crossed lovers, a beautiful Native American princess and her colonist, 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 Studer, pledged their undying love for one another on the banks of the lake. Alas, their love is forbidden. And from here, the legend takes a couple of different paths, neither with a happy ending. One version is that the couple used the lake to float love notes back and forth written on birch bark. They finally agreed to run away together and get married, but they were soon discovered during their flight. During the uh, fight that ensued, the young colonist was killed. Grief stricken, the maiden took to the lake and took her canoe, paddling to the deepest part where she tied a rock around her waist and cast herself into the icy depths. In the other version, the princess floated love notes across the lake for seven years, but never received a response. Her metaphorical heartbreak turned real when she rowed herself into the middle of the lake and stabbed herself through the heart to end her suffering. In both cases, before ending her own life, the princess cursed away. Her curse was that if her love was to be unfulfilled, she would never endure the misery alone. One young man would be destined to drown in the lake every year from then on. This is no idle curse. In roughly 200 years since the native heartbreak, it is said at least one person a year has drowned in the waters of the lake, most of them being young men. Fact or fiction, this legend keeps many locals away from the lake, and lifeguards have, been com- have commented on the disproportionate number of young men that have drowned in the lake over the years, while female swimmers don't seem to have the same problem. My suggestion for the young men? Don't go swimming there. Yeah. I love a good swim. I think I'll pass on that one. Yeah. <laughs> never, never try to test the Native American curse. So from there, we're going to head south to the state of Georgia, and this here that we will find Lake Lanier. The 38,000-acre lake, about 40 miles north of downtown Atlanta, is one of the state's most popular getaway destinations, but not all visitors get to leave on their own two feet. (laughs) Lake Lanier is actually a man-made reservoir that was completed in 1956 when the Buford Dam was built across the Chattahoochee River. As with many other projects of this nature, previous riverfront property was suddenly cast to the bottom of the lake. Amidst the properties that were waterlogged in the flooding were almost 20 cemeteries. While the remains in those cemeteries were reportedly all relocated, the empty graves and ghost towns have lent an air of grim mystery to the region. In the years since the lake was built, the most well-known stories tied to its waters is that of Susie Roberts and Della Mae Parker Young. While driving home in 1958, they somehow went off the road near a bridge and plunged into the murky waters. For over a year, they were considered missing without a trace, at least until the lake released the body of Della. It was a grim sight for sure, her battered body in a blue dress, her hands missing and lost forever to the lake. Ever since the accident, there had been rumors circulating about the Lady of the Lake. 
a ghost with no hands, wandering on the bridge in her blue dress. It took 32 more years to recover Susan's body. In November of 1990, a construction crew working on the bridge discovered a car with Susie's remains inside. It was a mystery solved with tales of Lady of the Lake appearing uh, near the bridge still persists. Add to that the fact that over the years there had been a disproportionate number of deaths associated with the lake, ranging from boating accidents, drowning, and divers, uh, drivers careening off the road into the water, as well as several unresolved murders, giving the lake a menacing and spooky reputation. According to a 2017 article in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, since 1994, at least 150 people have died in or around the lake. It's easy to see why the local population considers the lake a curse. Various tales from accident survivors and near-drowning victims point to some unusual and unexplained power that hangs heavy over the lake. There are accounts of boats hitting something where there is nothing there. Watercraft capsizing for no apparent reason and sudden waves slamming into boats without warning. In mere drowning incidents, the survivors have described the sensation of being pulled under by unseen hands. Could they be the missing hands of the Lady of the Lake, or could it be the angel of death come calling? For many, the idea that the angel of death may hold sway over Lake Lanier is no idle speculation. Over the years, several eyewitnesses have reportedly seen a mysterious ghostly raft in the dead of the night. The pilot of this raft is little more than a shadowy specter, drawing comparisons with Chara, the boatman in the mythological river Styx. This phantom holds a lantern and guides his craft with a pole before fading into the darkness, an image of death incarnate. I'd be fascinated to see that, besides the fact that, well, if I survive seeing it, Yes. But I'd be fascinated to see such a thing. Tyrants always, or Charon, Charon has always fascinated me. Yeah. Oh, always. Definitely. And uh, all his, um, well, all his uh, pop culture in, incarceration, incarceration, incarnation, incarnation, incarceration. He's not incarcerated. Now, you might think he's changed for the rubber sticks. Yes. But not incarcerated. I mean, but, right, and whatever I say, you know, I'm going to hell, I'm actually describing this, so I might take his job. Might take that as a challenge. You want to challenge him? Not really. No, I don't think I would either. Fascinating character. I'd love to have an interview with him. Yeah, that would be fascinating. Percy Jackson, he likes the science suits. Classy guy. Yeah. Anyways. <laughs> All right, so we're going to pop over to Louisiana. We're going to go visit the swamp. Uh, this is Mackinac <clears throat> Swamp, uh, right? Mackinac? 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 I keep trying to put the N-A in there. It's N-A-N-C-H-A-C, swamp. Man swamp, I'm going to call it that. Um, from the Duffy waters of Georgia, we drift west to the swamps of Louisiana. Adrift in the murky waters of the swamp, um, be on the lookout for snakes, gators, and, of course, spectral spirits of voodoo priestesses, because you can't be in Louisiana without those. Located about half an hour northwest of New Orleans, the swamp is a web of waterways through a forest of bulb cypress, water tulipa, and freshwater marshes. 
In the early 1900s, several of the prosperous settlements were tucked away along the edges of the swamp, including the town of Frenier. Amongst Frenier's residents was a voodoo priestess by the name of Julia Brown. By all accounts, Julia and the town's residents coexisted and worked together peacefully despite some of Julia's unusual tendencies. One of the things that Julia was most well known for was her habit of sitting on her porch, playing her guitar, and singing songs. The most memorable of which had the chilling line, one day, I'm going to die and take the whole town with me. While the townspeople might have taken this as an idle lyric by an eccentric neighbor, it may have been more of a curse than they thought. When Julia Brown died, the whole town turned out for her funeral service on September 29th of 1950. At 4 o'clock in that afternoon, a massive hurricane swept through with a 13-foot storm surge. Premier and all of its neighboring communities were wiped off the map, along with many of their residents. The few survivors who managed to cling to the cypress trees, listening to the screams of their less fortunate neighbors throughout the duration of the storm. Premier was never rebuilt, and all you will find there is a mass grave of those who died in the storm. Don't plan to drive there yourself, though. The only way to find the cemetery is that it's buried so deep in the swamp is on an official swamp tour offered by the Cajun. Over a hundred years, excuse me, over the years, hundreds of people have braved the swamp and have experienced the sound of a ghostly voice singing grounds into the song. And some have even seen the specter of the aged voodoo priestess on the shores of Lake Pontacharchan, laughing at those who don't turn. Pontacharchan. Pontacharchan. Okay. Anyway. More syllables than we're capable of. I'm adding a syllable. I'm sorry. I added an extra A in there. Um, anyway, but they didn't take her song seriously. There's always been warnings of those. That's right, baby girl. Okay, it's your phone. <laughs> Although I still want to get down to the moon again, and I do want to take a trip to the song. Yeah. I think it's fun. Fire ride. Fire ride. Yep. I'm going to things. We're going to let them get a little recovered from the hurricane. Yeah, they they, they, they need some time. And it will kind of dry out. Ah, so from Louisiana, we are going to move a little from the west over to Lone Star State to one of the largest cities in all of America. Dallas is dotted with parks and lakes. Just to the northeast of the city center, you'll find White Rock Lake. The lake is just a little over 100 years old, having been made by damming White Rock Creek in the 1910s. While this was initially constructed in response to a water shortage, White Rock Lake has become the center of recreation for those in the community. As much fun as it is, as it is to get out on the water, accidents happen, and White Rock Lake has seen accidental deaths in its waters over the years since its completion. At least one of those lost to the lake still seems to be intent on finding her way home. First reported in 1943 in the Texas Folklore Society's publication, backwoods to border. A young woman has been seen around the lake soaked from head to toe. Wearing a 1930s-era sheer white dress, the woman who appears to be in her early 20s is a pitiful sight to behold. The identity of this spirit is uncertain, but theories include her losing her life in a boating accident to her having taken her own life in a tragic suicide. Over the years, divers around the lake have stopped to aid drivers around the lake have stopped to aid this unfortunate young woman. They will let her get into their car and ask where she needs to go. 
She will ask to be taken to Gaston Avenue in Dallas, just a couple of miles away. But while en route her supposed to her supposed destination, the woman will vanish from her seat, leaving only a soaking wet seat behind. So we had a question from Ronnie. How do you spell some of the names on the Ah, okay. So I can go ahead. I can uh, type out some of them for you if you want to go ahead and dive into this one, which is very easy to spell. <laughs> All right, so this is Veterans Lake um, over in Sulphur, Oklahoma. We're going to head north, and you'll find the obviously named town of Sulphur. Just on the south edge of this town is a small man-made body of water called Veterans Lake. Completed in 1933, and they named it the American War Veterans. This is a tranquil lake that beckons the people to come and escape the heat of Oklahoma summers. Unfortunately, amidst the beautiful waters also would prepare a very vengeful phantom. I'd like to wreak havoc on the unsuspecting visitors uh, after sundown. As the story goes, back in the 1950s, a woman was watching her son play in the small man-made lake in what is now the Chickasaw National Recreational Center. The mother, distracted only for a moment, looked up to see her son had disappeared under the water. Being a good mother, she rushed to the lake to try to save her son only to be pulled under herself, resulting in both of them drowning. A few years later, it was said that another girl drowned in the lake as a result of a boating accident. At least the, that was the official cause that was reported. Left after the official reports were the phantoms of the mother, her son, who drowned just a few years prior. At best, they seem to think the lake they seem to think they are the late angels of death. At worst, their vegetable spirits actively seeking their next victim, as the sun sets on Veteran Lake. Considered one of the most common places in all of Oklahoma, the lake often induces a feeling of unease, panic, and visitors after the sun sets. Linked to a 2015 kidnapping and murder and a 2009 incident where a man drowned while trying to save the life of a young child. The lake's reputation for creepiness has only increased and has, has claimed more and more souls over the years. While it is a well-regarded location to go out on the canoe or a kayak, we strongly recommend that you get back to shore before dusk. Be aware of the woman and her son who foretold, foretell tragedy on this place to this day. Getting the three that we tripped over so sorry. There's a few. There's a few. <laughs> but this next one, I've been pretty sure I can say this right. Spirit Lake. <laughs> I think I got that. So from here, we're moving to the northwest, and we've reached a state that is better known for potatoes than for ghosts and lore. In Idaho, near the Cure de uh, Deline, Cure de Aline, part of Aline, as mm-hmm. translate from French, nestled in a – why is there a French name in Idaho? They have probably, a French probably, probably a French Canadian came down. Yeah. Okay. Anyway. <laughs> so, anyways, nestled in a scenic mountain valley, the aptly named Spirit Lake paints a dreamlike picture. Often a veil of mist floats over the lake, intermingling with dark silhouetted pines standing guard at the water's edge. It's a picture-perfect paradise with the lake's crystal clear waters and gleaming mountain views. However, the legend of Spirit Lake doesn't have a romantic fairy tale ending for two forlorn lovers. They are united only in death, where their spirits now haunt the lake, making it one of the spookiest places in all of Idaho. The saga has been told for generations of high pan, 
the beautiful and faithful girl whose name means fearless running water. She was the daughter of the tribe's chief and madly in love with one of the tribe's handsome braves. But a villainous chieftain from another tribe threatened war if he could not have the lovely High Pam for his own. Wanting peace for his people, High Pam's father could only agree. Now, the story from here has several endings, so pick your favorite. One says, on the day of the marriage ceremony, High Pam's true love kills the evil chieftain and rescues her in a canoe. But in their escape across the lake, a rain of arrows falls upon them, killing them both. In another version, High Pam's true love is killed in the battle as she escapes in a canoe. But seeing that her love has been killed, she paddles to the middle of the lake and throws herself overboard. Meanwhile, the last version has the two lovers tying themselves together and leaping from suicide cliff into the lake, never to be found again. All of the endings, of course, resulted in the same tragic conclusion. So sad, in fact, that the Native Americans changed the name from the lake from clear water to Lake of the Spirits, because in the spring they hear mournful and haunting sounds emanating from along its shores. And to this day, people often report seeing two young lovers go to the silhouettes on moonlit nights paddling the lake in their phantom canoe until it disappears into the night. Hmm. So I keep going. I will keep going. Our next stop, we are going to drive to the southwest along the California-Nevada border where you'll find the storied Lake Tahoe. In California's side of the lake is Lake Tahoe's only rocky island, Fennet Island. Rising 150 feet out of the water, Fennet Island is found in scenic Emerald Bay. The small island hasn't always been named Fennet. It has been called many things over the past 100 years, but by far its creepiest name was Dead Man's Island. Captain Dick Barter lived on the island in the 1870s. A retired British sea captain, he looked after a railroad tycoon's five-room summer villa. A recluse who enjoyed the company of drink, he would pilot his dinghy he called Nancy to Tahoe City or the South Shore to visit local saloons, often coming back well-oiled. On one, on one occasion in January of 1870, Captain Dick cast capsized his boat in the chilly waters of the lake. In the dead of night, the weather deathly cold, it was useless to call for help. Despite the conditions, the captain somehow saved himself, but ended up needing to amputate his own toes after the harrowing experience. You say, ow, but he probably didn't feel a thing. Probably not. He was well-oiled. <laughs> and, and frostbitten to the point that he needed to amputate his toes, no. but still. Anyways, Fearing the lake had his number, he chiseled a tomb in Finette Island's granite and erected a wooden chapel and mounted a wooden cross on top. He let it be known to his bar buddies that if it ever happens again and his body washes ashore, he would like to be buried on the island. The lake did, in fact, have his number and claimed that Captain Dick's life on October 18, 1873, as he was returning from Tom Rowland's Lake House Saloon. His boat was found smashed to bits against the rocks at Rubicon Point, but they never found his body. His tomb on Finette Island remains empty to this day, but it is said on chilly evenings in October when the mist provides the eerie bridge to the isle, the ghost of Captain Dick can be seen riding from the lake's icy grip and climbing up the steep weathered rock in search of his final resting place on Finette Island. How long does he have tomb? That's pretty cool. I, just, I looked at pictures, but the island looks absolutely fascinating. I mean, it's a really, really small island, but the fact that it towers 150 feet out of the lake is 
pretty impressive. Yeah, I, yeah, no, no ritual. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I thoroughly disagree with Selenia. 
Yeah. That's to just... I'd let, rather put away too many things. That's to let them just do their thing. Yeah. So we're going to go north again and east. Second So from here, we've kind of gone ahead and we've kind of zigzagged all the way across the country. Yeah, we're going back. Kind of like a typewriter. Typewriter, going to go ahead and click. Typewriter, dating myself maybe a little bit. Ah, so, flying from one corner of the continental U.S. to another, we land in Maine. Off the rugged southern coast of the town of Georgetown, you'll find the Seguin Island Lighthouse. Commissioned by George Washington in 1795, the lighthouse was rebuilt in 1819, replacing its original wooden tower with stone, and then again in 1857, this time installing a bright, powerful Fresnel lens into its tower on top of a rocky speck of land about two miles out to sea. Spooky tales abound about this lonely beacon. Witnesses had reported having seen the ghost of a young girl who was said to be buried not far from the lighthouse grounds. They say she has been seen running up and down the stairs of the tower, laughing and waving. There are other accounts that the ghost of lighthouse uh, that the ghost of lighthouse keeper first lighthouse's first keeper. Ah, there we go. <laughs> John Polrinski. I got that. Nicknamed the old captain is still seen about the outpost at sea. The story says Polinski died penniless on the island in 1804 and ever since has haunted the tower and the keepers who came after him. In 1985, while in process of decommissioning the lighthouse and packing up the place, the apparition of the old captain appeared at the bed of the warrant officer warning him not to take the furniture and to leave his home alone. The very next day, the boat that was to carry the cargo back to the mainland was sunk in a freak accident while being loaded with that very same furniture. But perhaps the most frightening story is that of the lighthouse keeper and his wife. To save off the loneliness and monotony for his wife, the keeper ordered piano to their island outpost. She was delighted, but unfortunately she could only she couldn't play without sheet music, which she only had one. Only able to play one song, she played it again and again and again. And again, until eventually it drove the lighthouse keeper insane. In a fit of madness, he took an axe and chopped the piano to bits. Then, in his rage, he turned on his poor wife and killed her, and realizing the ghoulish deed that he had just committed, he then took his own life as well. Ever since, it has been said that on foggy nights, you can still hear that ghostly piano playing across the waves, well, both mariners and former keepers have claimed to see the, the ghost of the light, uh, light keeper walking towards the sound, carrying an axe. It kind of reminds me of the, um, the jazz axe story. Yeah. Yes. That if you play jazz, you keep them away, where in this case, if you play that song, he comes. Yeah. Like over and over and over and over again. <laughs> All right. So we're going to go south again to New York. Yep. Yep. Not too far from uh, where we were. We are sliding down the eastern seaboard and we will arrive back in New York. But this time we're going to wind our way up the Hudson River to Bear Mountain State Park. It is here that we find Hessian Lake. Hessian Lake is peaceful, crystalline body of water that sits at the base of the mountain. While no swimming is allowed, the lake is a perfect spot for kayaks and canoes. It's probably just as well that no swimming is allowed because if there is even a shade of truth behind the lake's name, 
probably wouldn't want to swim there. Anyways, during the Revolutionary War, British Redcoats and German Hessian auxiliary soldiers engaged American patriots in a fierce battle along the lake and river. The Americans held the ground behind a stockade wall, and a detachment of Hessian uh, fascists led in the charge to capture the fort. Repulsed again and again, the Hessians and Redcoats eventually overwhelmed the patriots, but at great cost. According to local legend, some 250 Hessians fell during the battle, and their bodies and body parts were then cast into the lake. It was said that the water turned red with blood, prompting it to be called Bloody Lake. Timothy Dwight, who went on to become the eighth president of the Elk College in 1795, reveals the horrors of the lake after visiting the battlefield. He recorded the following in his report. We found at a small distance from Fort Montgomery a pond of moderate size in which we saw the bodies of several men who had been killed in the assault upon the fort. They were thrown into this pond the preceding autumn by the British that when probably the water was sufficiently deep enough to cover them. Some were covered at this time, but at a depth so small as to leave them distinctly visible. Others had an arm, a leg, a part of the body above the surface. Their faces were bloated and monstrous, and their postures were uncouth and distorted. Years later, the name of the lake was eventually changed to the Hessian Lake, but the creepiness, it seems, has never yet never left. Many folks had claimed to see uniformed Hessian spirits roaming the lake's shoreline at night. One specter had even been reported with missing limbs and glowing eyes. At least he still has his head, unlike his Hessian cousins, cousins in nearby Sleepy Hollow. And his description of the body in the lake reminds me of that um, swamp area through Mordor. Yeah, the scene in uh, yeah. Yeah, Lord of the Rings. Yeah. Very, very similar to that. Yep. Yeah. 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 That scene, except real and in a lake in New York State. Yeah. Didn't know New York was Mordor, did you? Mm, depends on what part you're talking about. That's true. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> in New York. All right, dropping down to North Carolina, Beaver Lake and the French Broad River. Now, further down the east coast that we go into North Carolina, we're going to take a drive far inland to Beaver Lake near Asheville. While Beaver Lake was named by damming the Beaver Dam Creek in 1923, it's still an area of natural wonder. If you're enjoying a leisurely paddle across the edge of Beaver Lake, don't be surprised if you catch sight of beavers, turtles, offsites, maybe a ghost or two. According to the local folklore, the lakeshore is haunted by two spirits. One is believed to be that of a young man who drowned in the 1970s, while the other is that of a young woman who is thought to have committed suicide. She is said to have been seen on the dam looking down over the water. These are not the only ghosts to linger on Asheville's waterways, though. While the ghosts of Beaver Lake seem to be lost in sadness, the siren of the French Broad River is bent on seamlessness. Formed some 300 million years ago, the French Broad River is one of the oldest rivers in the world as it flows through Asheville, featuring great hiking and biking and unlimited paddling opportunities. That is, of course, if you can avoid the sirens. Based on a Cherokee legend, the siren of the French Broad River seems to be as old as the river itself. The first story appeared in 1845 and was later retold in Charles Montgomery Skinner's 1896 book, Myths and Legends of Our Own Land. 
The tale involved a beautiful dark-haired woman who enchants her young lovers to the upper reaches of the river that are filled with rapids and whirlpools. Luring them ever closer and closer to the water, she appears to them in the nude and at the water edge. But as the young man reaches for her, her warm skin suddenly becomes scaly and cold, and her face turns to this grinning skull of death. A loud, devilish laugh it rings through the forest as her victim is yanked under water and never speaks to me. Sirens aren't good. Don't mess with the sirens. If you didn't learn anything from the Odyssey, you should have learned that. Yeah. Sirens beautiful, but dead. Dead. <laughs> Now, if you survive your brush with a siren, you can haul your kayak down to Florida's Blackwater River. The Blackwater is considered a favorite spot for canoeing, kayaking, and camping in Florida's Panhandle. Streaming through undeveloped lands, Panhandling River is said to be like going through beautiful tropical rainforests. But beware, for the Blackwater has two mysterious and sinister residents in its midst. Locals will warn you to be careful when taking a dip. They say that there's a deathly pale-looking woman with long, jet-black hair smotting, smelling of rotting flesh who will drag you under the water, attempting to drown you in the river. So far, only a lucky few have escaped her vile clutches. If you dodge the deathly pale woman, you might manage to find a different woman who is less menacing, but whose appearance is just as chilling. This woman appears wearing a long, white gown covered with blood and is typically seen near the oldest white Atlantic cedar tree in the park. Legend says she was sacrificed there in a bloody ritual. Rumors now say that people who visit the spot experience chills and have the feeling of being suffocated as a result of all all the sacrificial rituals that took place at the site. One final warning, if you do see this ghostly woman in white, don't look her in the eyes. Otherwise, you could be next. Another, another name. I don't know if I'll trip over this one. I'll give you a shot. So from Florida, we're going to go ahead and slide along the Gulf Coast. And from there, we get to Alabama and the Tom Bigby. Tom Bigby, I got it. Tom Bigby River. Over the years, witnesses have reported uh, seeing the phantom steamboat of the Tom Bigby. Pauline Gulf and Plains along the shore of the Tom Bigby near Pennington, Alabama. In the mid-1800s, the side-wheeled paddle steamer Eliza Battle was amongst the most luxurious riverboats on the river until disaster claimed her on a cold winter night. On March 1, 1858, she was fully loaded, carrying 101 passengers and crew, and more than 12,000 bales of cotton when a fire broke out on the main deck. Panic ensued as the blaze quickly spread over the boat. Passengers, mostly in the night clothes, could only escape the flames by leaping into the icy river waters. In the end, what was left of the ship sank, leaving somewhere between 26 to 32 people dead due to mostly exposure in the freezing water. Soon after the disaster, ghostly stories began to circulate of the ill-fated Eliza battle, blazing again near the place where she sank, accompanied by the screams of people begging to be rescued. The sightings of the burning steamers are often... The sightings of the burning steamer are said to happen most often on cold and windy nights. 
So if you stick the paddle in the waters in the warmer months, you may be safe from encountering this boat full of tragic spirits. Now, just for reference, the fact that it's between somewhere between 26 and 33 people died, why don't they know exactly how many people? It says that the manifest, the guest manifest, the passenger manifest, burned out with the boat. So that's a problem. Yeah, didn't help in trying to uh, figure out who was missing and whatnot. Anyways, moving along. So we're going to pop over to uh, the Mississippi River, which of course is in Mississippi, Missouri, and Illinois. Uh, now, this is the Tom Big B River, and you'll find it much larger than its mighty Mississippi cousin. It's from its source up in Minnesota all the way down to the Gulf of Mexico. Mississippi River is brimming with bigger-than-life stories and legends, of course, from some ghostly tales. Among the many stories that lurk along the shores of the Mississippi, he may, <clears throat> there may be no more than a haunted, there may not be a more haunted stretch of river or water that runs from Grand Tower, Illinois, to just past Cape Girardeau, Missouri. According to the local folklore, the spirited activity likely stems from two massive boat accidents and one spooky reunion at Tower Rock. On an October night in 1869, the steamship Stonewall was traveling on the river when it caught fire in what became one of the worst disasters on the river. It's estimated that the death toll was somewhere between 200 and 300, but nobody knows for sure because the passenger was also burned up with this steamboat. Yay for digital technology today. <laughs> <laughs> Witnesses reported watching the Stonewall burn for nearly two hours before sinking into the river on that eerily dark and quiet night. Seventeen years later, another October night with the steamboat uh, Mascotti broiler exploded, engulfing that ship in fire as well. Eyewitnesses say that the fire raged, the ship's smokestack fell over the gangplank, trapping passengers and enchanted to escape. All in all, the disaster claimed 35 lives. Psychics say that the spirits of the dead in these disasters remain to this day. They have told uh, of the scene of the ghosts in these tragic ship fires, making lonely pilgrimages. I apparently should have had whiskey instead of cider tonight. Or I should have kept the words to three syllables or less. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> anyway, back to the water from the local cemetery and uh, seeing unearthly hands and figures reaching out of the dark water. It's also not uncommon for the barge captains and crews to observe unexplainable lights bouncing across the water and hearing ghostly screams and cries for help while passing through the spooky stretch of the river. Nearby Tower Rock offers some of the more supernatural lore. The 60-foot rock formation has been a silent sentinel along the river throughout its history. Boatmen would celebrate passing by it with a drink of good cheer. River pirates used it as an ambush spot, and Meriwether Lewis of the Lewis and Clark expedition was right about its peril. Strong currents thus meeting the, each other from a form of immense and dangerous whirlpool from which no boat dare approach in that state of the water. But the spookiest story of the rock happened in 1839, when an entire wedding party's boat got caught in a gigantic whirlpool and sucked under the muddy waters. Only one survived. 
That very day, the groom's sister, who was not on the ill-fated boat, gave birth to a baby girl. This baby was given the name, uh, same name of the bride. Twenty years later, to celebrate her birthday in 1859, the young woman held a party on Tower Rock. The partygoers were astonished when the members of the long-dead wedding party rose up out of the Mississippi River and presented the young woman with a mysterious parchment scroll for warning her of the impending civil war. After delivering the prophetic message, the entire ghostly group once again disappeared into the murky waters of the river. Within two years, the country would be cast into the violent struggle. <laughs> oh, dear Lord. Oh. I didn't do my warm-up today, apparently. <laughs> oh, boy. Red leather, yellow leather. Red leather, yellow leather. It's been a Monday. It's sad. It's empty. Oh, it's empty. You know. I didn't know if you knew what it was. No, it was splashing there. I'm good. I'm good. All right. All right. So, this time, it's time to move west again. It really are. It kind of really did what we've We've had back quite a bit today. Really like a typewriter. Kind of worked our way across the country and work our way back across the country to Colorado. Well, this next spirit has been seen along riverbanks from Montana to Mexico. La Llorona, or the Weeping Woman, as she is called, seems to be most at home on the shores of the Yampa River in northwest Colorado, where the folk tale warns that if you hear her crying, you must run away as fast as you can. No, no arguing about this one. There's, if you hear her, if you encounter her, just off you go. Off you go. Now, the legend of the Weeping Woman has been part of Hispanic culture in the Southwest, dating back to the conquistadors. It said that the uh, that La Llorona, 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 La Llorona, was the most beautiful girl in the village with long, flowing black hair. She was very poor until she married a rich man. She, excuse me. It is. She loved him very much and blessed him with many children. But she was heartbroken when she found out that he was unfaithful. What a pig. Whether it was despair, jealousy, rage, or madness, the woman took her children to the river and cast each of them into the murky waters one by one. Yeah, I would have done that for my husband. Yeah. Not the kids. Wasn't the kids' fault. No. Ugh. No one. No one's innocent in this story. It's only then, when she sees her young children sinking into the current of the river, that she regrets her actions and rushes toward the water to save them. But she falls, either striking her head or just simply drowning, suffering the same fate as, as her children. In death, her remorseful soul must now wander the shores of the river alone, weeping for her children. River boaters to this day say they have heard her wailing along the river canyon. Wearing a white gown, she is said to roam the rivers and creeps perpetually crying for her children. It's also been told that she is to be feared because some believe she will drag an unsuspecting victim and drown them in a water and grave like she did her own children. What is it with weeping women in Colorado? There's also the Cherokee story of the, uh, of the weeping canyon. 
I don't know. Yeah, for the Grand Canyon. Yeah. We had this discussion a little while ago. They're, they're, they speak woman and white. Yeah. It's a it's a very common say, trope. Yeah. Yeah. You hear in so many ghost stories the the lady in all white, the woman in white, mm-hmm. and it's weird because what? Well, what episode was it? We had like three of them in a single we episode. We did. Yeah. And it wasn't that long ago. I can't remember exactly which episode that was, but. But Colorado seems to have a lot of weeping women you don't want to hear. Yeah, no, no, that's definitely not a good thing. And I'd like to think that, um, you know, given the options of uh, whether it was despair, jealousy, rage, or madness. Madness, I know madness. I, at least you hope. You kind of hope. Because anything else, she doesn't exactly come out, come out smelling like roses in that story herself. Anyways, Let's moving along. To Wyoming. Yeah, so just to the north of Colorado, we find ourselves in the sparsely populated Wyoming, which is home to most of Yellowstone National Park. It's not surprising that this park, the oldest and most famous of the national parks, abounds with legends, myths, and tall tales. And by the number of ghost stories reported in the park, bears aren't the only thing to be aware of. Two of the park's folklore favorites come from Yellowstone Lake and the Lower Falls. Paddle out onto Yellowstone Lake, the park's largest body of water, and you may come across the small and uninhabited Stevenson Island, which some folks say is haunted. The skeletal remains of the wrecked East Sea Water Steamboat lay beached along the island's shore. But if that's not creepy enough, there is a story about the body of a drowned frontiersman who appears lying face down nearby. As told in S.E. Swassinger's Creepy Yellowstone, in 1929, a park worker checking out the island stumbled upon a body clad in buckskin looking like a fur trapper from the prior century. He is quoted as saying, I turned the body over and stared into a pair of bulging brown eyes on a blue-white face. And then, in between one breath and the next, the body vanished. Suddenly, my hand was gripping empty air instead of an old-fashioned jacket. An even older ghostly tale dates back to the 1870s when a group of Native Americans being pursued by militiamen for stealing horses. The small band of Native Americans was no match for the well-armed militia, so they hastily constructed a raft to cross the river above the falls of the Yellow Yellowstone, lower Yellowstone River in an attempt to get away. Under a hail of bullets, the men and women of the tribe's raft, along with the stolen horses swimming alongside, were swept downstream in spite of their best paddling efforts. The members of the militia watched as the raft flipped over the edge of the 70-foot fall, disappearing into the roaring white foam with its human cargo. And to this day, it's said that when you stand on the platform at the brink of the lower falls of Yellowstone, you can still hear the voices of the chanting warriors singing their death song over the roar of the falls. And sometimes the river waters flow with a red tinge as a stain. Now, caveat, we did say that this is waters to go ahead and paddle in. We do not not paddle over the yellow, lower Yellowstone Falls. Don't do it. Don't do it. No, they already have enough ghosts there. Yes, they do. They don't need more. Yep. Last story? I don't know if it's last. No, not quite last. We are. We're we're fine. We'll we'll get done in time. Two story points. So we're going to pop over to Utah and the Great Salt Lake, of course. 
Now, if you go far enough to the southwest of Yellowstone, you'll enter into Utah, and there you will find Great Salt Lake. It is here that the creepy tale of Jean-Baptiste is told. A great deal river in Salt Lake City, Baptiste was discovered to have been stealing clothes and jewelry from the local bodies that he was burying. Over 30 years, Baptiste was said to have robbed the graves of more than 300 people, stripping them of clothing and possessions before dumping their naked bodies back into the sea. The public was so outraged by this lonesome crime um, that the case didn't end up calling for his hanging. Even though the local authorities devised an especially cruel punishment for him. First, his forehead would be marked with a sentence, brandished with robbing the dead. Next, his ears were cut off, and then no one would ever be able to look at him again. He was then banished to a remote island on the Great Salt Lake. Baptiste was paddled out to Fremont Island, the lake's third largest island, and it was pretty much left there to die. Weeks passed before authorities came to check on him, and they found no sign of him anywhere. There was a speculation that he built a makeshift raft and was drowned in a lake while trying to escape. While another story says vengeful citizens came to the island to be, uh, exact their own justice. Years later, it was said hunters found the skeleton believed to be Baptiste with leg iron. All that matters is that he was never seen alive again. His ghost, however, still walks the aisle and the Great Lake. It's been reported that the ghastly apparition of Jean-Baptiste had been spotted along the lakeshore carrying an armful of wet and rotting dead men's clothes before walking towards the water and then disappearing. Grave robbing. Age-old tradition. Yeah. Don't recommend it. No, still illegal. Very illegal. And even less, and even fewer reasons for it today than there were a couple okay. centuries ago. Yep. Yeah. At least then they tried to further science. So they say. Well, I mean, until it was legal to actually donate the body. Yeah. I mean, the universities were paying them for that section. I'm not trying to, if I am kind of just trying to justify it, aren't I? You're using the universities that justification. I'm digging myself a hole. That's the claw to my toe. <laughs> Somebody needs a claw kit. Somebody will fight me. woke up. All right, so we're going to end in Oregon at Cannon Beach. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Her. <laughs> now, at the northwest corner of Oregon, you'll find the idyllic coastal town of Cannon Beach. With windswept beaches, stunning coastline views of a share of fine signaling. The Agronauta. In Beach House overlooks the Escola Creek and the Pacific Ocean. It's an ideal place to put in your kayak and paddle amongst the surf. The Argonauta seems to have one long-term resident that refuses to check out. Daniel Panzel was the guest of the inn before he disappeared without a trace during a storm in 1962. Today, the hotel's patrons report that Hansel's spirit still weighs in on the in the inn today. Joining Hansel in the area is another spirit who lingers along the popular make-out spot in a secluded section of the beach. The bandage man has a tendency to detract from any romantic interludes on the beach when he shows up in a car's rear view mirror, completely wrapped in bandages and smelling of rotting flesh. He is said to be the victim of some terrible sawmill accident 
accident, and the phantom shakes and pounds on the car or the truck doors and the windows, causing the young couple to scream in terror. Some stories, he disappears quickly, and others, uh, after the couple escapes by driving back into town, he then uh, will actually find bloody fingerprints on their vehicle doors and windows. While these spirits seem to stay off the water, you might want to check where you uh, park your beach kayak or your canoe while you're paddling in the area. You never know when you might find a bandage man. Bandage. A little bit of mummy, or not mummy, invisible man action going on there. Yep. <sighs> well, we made it. We made it. We we're pretty close to time. And with that, um, next, over our tongue, but, uh, um, next show, we're going to talk about some haunted and cursed objects. Yeah. I have enough to do part two, maybe three. Oh, it's like the haunted dolls. Yeah. It, it, There's it, always more. I, I stopped when I hit 12,000 words. And I'm like, I didn't even scratch the surface. She's inspired by... Uh, we just finished binge-watching Warehouse 13. So I'm like, ooh. Granted, I mean, you know, that show was like out like 10 years ago. Yeah. But. The fantastic show. If you haven't checked it out, it's streaming on Peacock, the NBC streaming service. Uh, five seasons, very bingeable. I started watching season three, so I need to go back and watch season one, too. Really fun show. It is. Very fun show. But lots of, uh, not necessarily all cursed objects, but mystical objects. Yeah. Yeah. Some of them definitely very much cursed. You can definitely say that the, their mystical aspect is very much curse-worthy. But yeah. inspiring. So that'll be in two weeks. Uh, again, we're only going to do one show in October because October. Um, and I'm not sure what I'm doing for that. I haven't started the script yet. I'll figure it out. We have a whole bunch of ideas. Yeah. I'm thinking haunted houses because October. Might be just some classic haunted houses. Or we can go through. Patrick Woods uh, gave us that list a little while back. Yes, we're sure we got the first one. This is true. We did get that, yeah. But um, can you use a, a little bit of inspiration from that list, too? One that was a haunted house. Let's see if there's a specific haunted house theme or something. Yep. Victorian, Victorian haunted houses. Yeah, I'll have to see what I can find. Yeah, let's see what I got saved. I have so much research saved. Haunted cabin in the woods. Uh, haunted stunning architecture. No. Too, too specific. Okay. It's okay. I, yeah, it's been a long day. But we're so glad that we were able to end it with you. <laughs> Thank you for putting up with uh, our twisted tongues and our uh, maybe excessive silliness. <laughs> So we're very happy to have you join us tonight. We will be back in those two weeks. And, um, yeah. Well, then, stay spooky. Come visit us if you're in town. Come on a tour. Um, if you're coming later on in the year, come on one of our indoor events that we'll continue to announce as we go along. Yep. So we got more to announce coming up. And, uh, yeah, keep them busy. Yep. Yep. So just because, uh, you know, we, we love Halloween just as much as the next spooky people, but um, just because it's Halloween, you know, the ghosts, are, the ghosts are always there. Mm-hmm. The ghosts don't just come out on Halloween. Uh, matter of fact, I think the coldest ones are some of the best ones. But, but that's my opinion. <laughs> Anyways, so thank you all so much for watching again. And uh, love, love to have you all here. And, uh, yeah, 
If you have any questions, anything like that, between now and the next two weeks, feel free to drop us a note. If uh, you want to come join us on the tour, we would love that. It's fantastic to see you all. Uh, I think since the last time we chatted, our full October schedule is now available. So if you look at uh, October, right through Halloween, our full schedule is available now, so you can go check that out. And uh, yeah. if you want to catch in-person silliness at haunted locations, you can also join us on our haunted Key West trip. Yes, that's right. So that's uh, about a bit 14, 15 months away now. But yes. still, it's clock ticking. Making reservations. Again, limited amount of space. Yep, but you can go check out hauntsofkeywest.com if you want to come on down and actually have a little vacation, fun in the sun with us December of 2022. Uh, we will be down there uh, and uh, inviting you all to come along and join us. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Yep. So anyways, with that, we will bid you, bid you all good night. Thanks for joining us, and that's all for now. Bye.